to Machinations. In this podcast, I, Oak Sprout, speak with early builders in monstrously high potential networks and investors with cutting edge takes on the crypto markets. Machinations is a Mechanaut production. Mechanaut is a digital cooperative which takes high conviction bets in the networks of the future and builds high utility early products to set those networks alight. Now, let's jump into the show. Al Morris is the founder of Koi. Koi is a groundbreaking project operating in the Arweave ecosystem and promises to be a cornerstone of the new web. The project aims to redefine the way content is created and consumed on the internet through its content availability mechanisms and developer tooling. Al's a thoughtful founder and lucid communicator, so we were also able to touch on topics like the history of content incentivization, as well as the potential implications of decentralized media on state censorship and society at large. Enjoy the show. All right, so I'm very happy to welcome Al Morris from Koi here today. Welcome, Al. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, um, so to sort of start setting the stage for, for us to talk about Koi, uh, Koi is principally innovating around the incentives for making available high quality content. Um, so to sort of put it in context, what do the incentives currently look like in Web2? So Web2 is a little tricky. Um, a lot of people copied from Facebook and the way that they handle things, which is a really complicated system where people feel incentivized to contribute to platforms because they know other people will be looking. But often they don't end up actually owning the content they create. And in fact, actually, the incentives for creating that content get kind of lost in the mix and end up getting passed over to the platform or to advertisers on the platform. Um, the very interesting thing about Web3 is that if people own the content themselves, you can start to do really fun stuff with the incentives for actually creating that content and how you handle uh, rewards over time. Great. So ha maybe we can dive in a little bit to how this, this uh, model, which was pioneered by Facebook, is kind of adversely affecting content creators today. Sure. Um, the most important thing to understand is that if you look at the Facebook terms and conditions, you own very little of what you publish on their platforms. Um, mm. And this is, you know, it's not such a big deal if it's your Facebook status or if your grandmother is posting a photo of her cookies. But if you uh, if you're there and you're trying to actually promote your content or you're a musician using YouTube to disseminate your songs, then it starts to be kind of a tricky thing, um, especially if you haven't actually claimed ownership or published them in another context first, because then you really do lose the, pub the publishing rights and the copyright entirely. Yeah. Um, so, and, and moving on a little bit, what, why do you think content incentivization is so important? How does it ultimately impact the, the creators and creators of content and, and communities and sort of society more broadly? Well, so it's kind of a mix of two things. Um, there's the promotion of freedom of speech, which is a really important thing. And that kind of goes down the line of saying, you know, if, if you only listen to people who are publishing on established platforms, then you're missing out on a lot of the different opinions that are out there. So mm -hmm. one of the really exciting things about the internet and the early Web 2 phase was that people who weren't being heard got to go out and actually say what they wanted to say and make sure that people could hear them. The really exciting thing now, though, is that beyond that, you've also got the ability for people to publish things in a way that can't actually be taken down now or that can't be censored or that mm. can actually 
um, kind of live on beyond the context that was originally published in as well. So something that is published now on a decentralized platform might still be there in 10 years and it might be relevant in that time frame. You know, it might it might take a while for some of these ideas to become really important, but promoting freedom of speech and making sure that people can actually make their mark on history is really important for that reason. Right. Well, I'm <clears throat> looking forward to diving into that a little bit more in a minute because um, that's that's really sort of what what Koi is based around. But I'm curious what what is crypto sort of tried so far? Um, what are some solutions which have come out of the crypto space to, to solve some of these issues? Well, so that was originally the purpose of Ethereum was to build unstoppable applications. And a lot of people tried to do really interesting things. So there were projects like Steemit and D2, which are some of them are still going. Um, the, the thing that a lot of them stumbled on, though, was that, you know, if you're trying to get all this data into Ethereum or into some decentralized storage medium, it was really hard for a long time. Um, the really exciting thing is that now Arweave has made it practically free to store a lot of content onto their platform. Um, and that makes a massive difference for the incentive model because it means that it's really efficient to get the stuff stored into there. And now we can start to really play with how we get people to do that. In, in the Web2 context, most of the time, content creators are really just incentivized by trying to chase likes or attention from mm -hmm. other people on the platform. And so what we thought is, well, why don't we try to find a way to let them actually earn that attention directly? And since attention is basically the juice of this industry, can we find a way to actually channel it more efficiently than just having it um, kind of float around with a bunch of likes on my tweet? You know, I should be able to actually quantify that somewhere, capture it and kind of you know, save it for later in case I want to ask for something from the network. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe we can dive into that a little bit. How did you and your team actually uh, find your way into solving this problem? This is a very interesting path. Um, we started out in about 2016 looking at kind of fake news around the Trump election in the United States. And there was sort of a weird thing happening at the time where you actually couldn't trust either side of the aisle. Everyone was kind of propagandizing and kind of constantly coming out with sort of crazy, um, very hyperbolic arguments that didn't necessarily make any sense in any context. And we started looking at that and thinking about ways that we could possibly uh, cross-reference some of this information or make it easier for people to see the context around the information they were reading. And the thing that that led to is several years later, getting into the web scraping side of the industry. Um, we had a client for my consulting firm that was in Chicago and he was doing a lot of uh, kind of going out and manually looking at his competitors and his suppliers pricing on their websites in order to keep his CRM up to date. And this process of going and looking at all these websites was getting very time consuming, especially when COVID started out, um, that he had two or three employees spending most of their time just going to these websites and looking at prices and trying to keep things up to date. So he asked us to kind of provide a short-term solution. We built something very centralized that just made all this much more efficient. But then that got us back to thinking like, what can we do with this to fix that original problem that we went down that path looking for? And we kind of started building a decentralized web scraping platform, almost uh, sort of one piece at a time. We just kind of patched it together and it started to work. And we were thinking, well, we've got to figure out a way to make this a scalable long-term solution. And so then the question becomes, how do you reward people for scraping content off of different websites and storing it? You should really reward the content that gets, you know, the most value over the long term. And if, if people are storing content that a lot of other people are looking at, that's a really good barometer for value. Um, especially if you can also see like, look, this person also has a high reputation, they're very reliable, and they're still looking at this as well. Now you really know that it's, it's not just attention, it's quality attention. Um, and so that took us down this path. And since then, 
uh, we've kind of realized that we can generalize a lot of what we've created. So a lot of the same toolkit that we use for that can actually be used to provide you know, back-end web services for decentralized applications and make them a lot more scalable. Um, and you just kind of get all these incentives right out of the box. Great. Okay. So that leads in very well to Koi itself and how it, how it works. So maybe you can talk, just sort of walk through at a high level at first, how Koi works in terms of the technology and the economics behind it. Sure, sure. So the, the gist of Koi is that with SmartWeave, um, SmartWeave is Arweave's contract language on the Arweave network. In, in the SmartWeave context, because Arweave is a storage network, you actually have to evaluate the, the function and then return it to the Arweave. And it's kind of a complicated process. So we built this network of nodes that can actually watch these kinds of contracts and watch for malfeasance. So if somebody tries to push an invalid state update, our nodes can catch that and then actually propose to slash that, that node. Mm -hmm. We're actually trying to trying to subvert the system in some way. And so this kind of root technology means that now if you wanted to create a decentralized app that runs on top of Arweave, you can use the coin network to keep that app accountable and to actually make sure that the rules are followed over time. Hmm. And this has some really interesting properties because it means that you know something that would have been really difficult on Ethereum, which is building um, like a very scalable decentralized application, can be done on Arweave very easily. And so our, uh, our kind of gold standard that we're aiming for this year is to try to get to the point where we can do something similar to Ruby on Rails, but for decentralized applications. So, you know, here's how you build decentralized Twitter in five minutes using Arweave and Coin. Great. So, so how does this play in with the, the, the Koi rewards and this sort of uh, competition for attention that, um, that is in the white paper? Oh, of course. So the really important part about building a decentralized application is having an internal currency and the ability for your users to interact that way. And so what you get out of the box with Koi, if you're building with our framework, is that the Koi nodes can also do things like track attention because we have that built into the root kind of part of the framework. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is if you launch a token and a D app on top of Koi, out of the box, you get access to this attention tracking functionality and the ability to launch your own token that uses that same network and that same information infrastructure. Interesting. Okay, maybe you can dive into a little bit how the that uh, the attention competition, uh, which is described in the white paper, actually works. Sure. So the way that we do this is every twenty four hours, the network basically pulls all the gateways, and so a gateway in this context is any portal that allows you to access information from the Arweave, and so we store all of the data that we have. If you go to Quite Rocks, which is our NFT portal, all the information, all the contents, all stored on Arweave. And when you view it, that request goes through one of our Weave's gateways. And as it's going through that gateway, we have a little piece of middleware that we've installed that keeps track of the actual amount of clicks that something gets. Uh, we also just implemented something called proofs of real traffic. And so a proof of real traffic is a very small proof of work. But you know, enough of these together creates something that's very difficult to falsify. And so we've put that together and added it as a very simple middleware to Arweave, but we've also provided it as an open source library. So if someone wants to sign up and add their network into the Koi ecosystem, we can begin tracking traffic there as well. Interesting. All right, a lo lot of pieces to dive into. Um, so let's talk about uh, each, well, actually maybe let, let's let's touch on Arweave more deeply for a second because we've talked about it. Um, it's, it's sort of peppered all over the conversation so far and I think it would be good to to go deeper on it. Um, 
what is are we uniquely bring to the equation and why why is it so integral to koi so a lot of people have tried to decentralized storage um it's been a pretty early you know as far back as crypto has been around everybody's been thinking about ways to do this better because it's one of the core components of a blockchain a blockchain has consensus and it has storage the really interesting thing that Arweave did, though, is that they changed the incentive model around so that nodes are incentivized to store things permanently and also to store as much of the network's storage as possible. Um, and this is different from something like Filecoin because something on Filecoin isn't necessarily stored forever. And so by changing the economics ever so slightly, by making everything permanent, Arweave becomes kind of a platform for building blockchains. And so actually, I know that you had uh, Tate from Verto on previously. Yeah. He calls it a layer one for layer ones, because it means that instead of a blockchain node having to store all of its consensus data, it can actually just store it onto Arweave. And so that means you can do incredibly composable applications all on top of this Arweave network. And it saves all of the nodes in my network, for example, from having to store all that information. So you can run a coin node for about the same weight as a Spotify app on your phone. Hmm. It's fascinating because I think what a lot of people outside the Arweave ecosystem kind of get caught up on is the the fact that it's, um, you know, they, they think it's purely a storage solution. And I think there's, um, it's a little difficult from the outset to see how that sort of enables a lot of what's what's coming to, into play now. Um, so I don't know, exciting stuff. And it's, it's great to, to hear your perspective as, as somebody's actually building um, on our weave. Yeah, so um, one thing to think yeah. about on that front too, um, if you look at the way that computers evolved, we got storage figured out as like kind of an early component. Mm. And then we built really complicated computation on top of that. And if you look at how computers work, storage is an integral component. That's where all the information goes after it gets computed. That's, you know, that's what computers do. They compute information, they put it into storage. And so the Arweave network looks like it might be able to become the base layer of a large decentralized compute network that can do all kinds of other stuff. And the storage is really the base of all of these things. Mm. And was that the, do you get the, I know you've worked quite closely with Sam Williams, the founder, and he was, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit how he um, sort of has been involved with Koi, but was that his uh, thinking from the beginning or is that something which kind of emerged as he realized what, uh, what he made with Arweave. The first time I met Sam um, was when we were kind of chasing him to see if he would give us a bit of free storage on Arweave because we were testing okay. out this decentralized web scraping idea. Mm. And we went to him with our early white paper that explained what we were trying to do. And he said, oh, that's what we were trying to do with Arweave. Hmm. We just, we built the storage part because that's what we needed because it was the first step in the process. Um, and so we had this ridiculous moment where we thought, wow, we, we've been working on the same thing for five years. Um, hmm. And then as you start talking to more people in the Arweave ecosystem, you realize a lot of them have had the same ideas. And it's this mm. kind of like community that has come together around this idea because it's, they, they solved the first step in the process. And now the really exciting part is that that opens up the doors for all of these incredibly composable applications on top of it. Very interesting. So if we switch back to Koi a little bit more, um, I, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will be thinking, you know, how, how will they be able to get involved with with Koi, um, obviously you've mentioned the the DAP framework, and maybe it's worth going into a little bit more detail because that that'll obviously be aimed at uh, application developers. But then um, you know, there's obviously also content creators and miners, people who are running peer witness nodes, 
um, ultimately people who integrate with the data. I know you've um, you've cited uh, Ocean and uh, Tableau and stuff like that. So maybe you can talk a little bit about each of those roles and how people will be able to get um, get involved with Coin. Sure, sure, of course. So the, the first thing, um, which is what we're doing with the pre-sale rounds right now, is to lock in a large group of people who want to run nodes and stake Koi tokens, because that kind of provides that base layer of compute functionality that runs the whole network. The, the really exciting thing is on top of that, then, you can build these decentralized applications. So as the network, we're kind of subsidizing people who want to build applications by making the nodes very efficient in the early stages. So we'll, we'll take care of rewarding the nodes for you. We can give you a grant. Um, the goal is to get people to start using this so that we're producing as much content as possible. So then finally, as a consumer, if you if you have a chance to build on top of or to actually you know use one of these apps that's built on top of this, then you get to own all of your content. Uh, so we're working on a Chrome extension actually at the moment where you'll be able to own all of your NFTs and have all these little pieces of content that you gather from all of these different apps. So it's decentralized Facebook, decentralized Twitter, have those all in one wallet so that you control all that information. Um, so there's a lot of different opportunities here for anybody. The really exciting thing that you can do this week is you can go over to Koi.rocks if you have OpenSea or other Ethereum NFTs, and you can import them into Koi.rocks to start earning attention points on them. And the way that works, basically, Arweave's been kind enough to give us a little bit of a grant. So we can cover the upload costs for you. Uh, so we'll upload your file on your behalf to Arweave. We'll give you uh, signed control of it to your own cryptographic key. And then every time that somebody looks at it, you'll earn Koi tokens. So a little bit of a free promo there. Great. So people can already start creating and uploading their content. Um, and by the sounds of it, they they can be signing up to run nodes as well. They can't actually run nodes yet. Is that right? Yeah, so we've got a command line node that we've set up for internal use. We've got that running as a testnet. But uh, if you're looking for kind of a you know a proper desktop application, that's probably going to come within about a month. OK, um, great. I'm. And I'm also very interested to dive in a little bit to that wallet Chrome extension that you mentioned, which sounds like it's on the roadmap coming down the line. Because um, that almost sounds like, yeah, it sounds like a wallet for the, almost like a, a content wallet, the, a wallet for all the content you create. Um, where do you see that evolving? How do you, where do you see that turning, turning into? Content wallet is exactly the way to put it. Um, the thing that we noticed is that when you have all of these NFTs and all these things out there on the internet, sometimes you can lose track of where they are. You know, this happens to me even on my own computer sometimes. I forget which folder I left a file in and I have to go like search through for it for a while. Um, so one of the things that's really nice about this is it will connect Ethereum, uh, so your MetaMask wallet, along with, you know, a typical uh, Arweave wallet. And we're hoping to probably add a few more in there as well with the goal of making it so that if you own content, on any of these networks, you can see it all in one place and make it really easy to access and also possibly move it between the networks as well. I mean, one of the first things which comes to mind is that it would be super cool to be able to be sort of automatically backing up all the all the content you're already creating in Web2 because, you know, I mean, I spend a, a fair bit of time on Twitter and I, I, in the back of my mind, I always think I don't want this to get lost. Um, so yeah, I mean, in the in the short term, I don't know if that's a part of the roadmap, but it would be very cool to to have that syncing over to like anytime I create something on Twitter for it to be backed up into this content wallet. So oddly enough, the content wallet came from our um, our original kind of web scraping fake news prevention app from 2016, mm -hmm. uh, which is a project called Breadcrumbs. So with Breadcrumbs, we had a functionality in there where you could right click a con any content on a page and just 
immediately save it into your, you know, your personal archive. Mm. Um, so we've looked at doing that with Koi as well. Uh, it's interesting to see what you think there. That, that makes a lot of sense. I think we could definitely do that. Nice. Um, so, and yeah, so I, I wanted to touch on the connection with Amplify actually, just because apart from anything else, we've got the Lone Ronin coming on the show next week. So where does, where does Amplify, the project Amplify fit into what Koi's doing? Well, so you know, you got your I and your O, right? So input, output. Yeah. Um, Amplify is an incredible system for uh, making it easy to read content from the R-Wave network and also to some extent to be able to push things into it. Um, what the Koi network provides is more of like a, a buffer service for specific smart contracts. So where Amplify is amazing at actually providing access to all the content that's on there, uh, what we're doing with Koi is to try and make it more user-friendly and to make it easier for developers to pull that into their apps. Mm -hmm. But Amplify is definitely a big part of what we're doing. We're actually working on uh, adding our logging middleware to their, their gateway nodes now. Very cool. Um, so we've touched on a few of the different uh, parts of the Koi system. Maybe we can just sort of tie it all together and say, like, what, what's the current state of the, the rollout of the system? And, and also maybe touch on the, the sort of longer term roadmap. Sure. So the one thing about decentralized applications that most developers know is that it, you know, it's a lot of early stage technology. So sometimes there's a lot of troubleshooting and you're spending more time configuring and testing things than you are actually building them. Uh, one of the main things we wanted to do with Koi is to make it really easy for people to build these kinds of applications. So for the last couple of months, what we've mainly been doing is streamlining a lot of the complexity. Um, so things like Koi.rocks have provided us with a portal where we can test a lot of this stuff out. And now what we're working on doing is taking all of those learnings that we've done and putting them into a really simple framework so that developers can, you know, one or two CLI commands can spin up a whole application that runs on top mm. of this network. Very cool. And ideally, well, maybe not ideally, but what, what, do you, what do you hope to see in some of the early applications? Like, what, what would they do? Well, so the first and most important thing is that users and content creators get to actually own the content that they're adding to these platforms. But the most exciting thing about it is that you can remove a lot of the rent-seeking behavior as well because of the low cost of actually operating these systems. So there's kind of a, a really exciting potential that rather than social media websites being designed to steal your attention and kind of waste your time and get you to buy things from ads, they can actually be designed to help you find the content that you really want to see. Um, and this, you know, this kind of goes across the board from things like decentralized YouTube to things like decentralized Twitter. But it also works really well for things like um, you know, blogging things like Medium that could easily be built on decentralized rails. So what I think we're going to see if, if Koi is successful in what we're building would be that people will take all the amazing ideas that people come up with in Web2 and start moving them over into the Web3 world. Awesome. And so how will Koi, the, the Koi attention rewards, you mentioned this earlier, but maybe we can dig in a little bit more. How will the Koi attention rewards system be able, how will, dApp developers be able to use that? So the way that it works is that when you launch a Koi app, you get out of the box a bunch of components that do things like managing your wallets and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. If you want to, you also have hooks that allow you to do other stuff like register the content to Koi. And if you register the content to Koi, then our nodes will take care of tracking the amount of views that it gets, at which point we have the ability to pay out rewards on your behalf to those users. So we call it a distribution function, which allows you to release tokens into the network. And if you run a dApp on top of Koi, you can take advantage of the complexity of the Koi distribution function to sort of model your own on top of it. 
which means that you get access to the attention tracking. You can do things like uh, rewarding nodes and bundlers for doing different types of computation for you. And you can also, you know, of course, make sure that some of it actually gets to the users. Got it. Very cool. And so if you were an uh, adapt or not, not adapt developer, but a, uh, a, a web application developer, and you were thinking of building a, a specific app, why would you currently, uh, what would you say to them to convince them to build on Koi rather than simply in the Web2 world currently? Well, the first thing is we'll probably give you a grant. Um, okay. But, you know, aside from that, we, uh, <laughs> we, we've tried to make it really easy. Um, I've been running uh, or running tech, I should say, for weteachblockchain.org for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I ran into there, I worked on Hyperledger projects, Ethereum projects. I've worked on all kinds of stuff with Filecoin and IPFS. Um, you know, and it's all, it's all really great stuff. But if you're not a really savvy developer who spent a lot of time learning how blockchains work, it can be really difficult. So we've tried to take all that complexity out of the system so that it makes it easy enough for you to just copy paste the code, have an app that runs, and then easily deploy it to permanent storage so that somebody can access it on our weave. Um, and so we've, we've ideally tried to make it so you don't even really need to know blockchain to work with Koi. Got it. Okay, so particularly good for people who are interested in crypto and developing uh, dApps, but you know have maybe struggled with previous setups and want to get going with something out of the box and something by the sounds of it, which they could monetize relatively easily and quite quickly. Exactly. Yeah. If you're somebody that's been thinking about the, you know, if you feel ideologically aligned towards decentralization, but you haven't thought about actually sitting down and learning how to do it yet, um, this might be your leapfrog moment where you get to skip all the hard work and just get into the fun part. Got it. Nice. So longer term, what would you say is your, your, your vision for Koi? What, what, what's the biggest thing it could be? You know, it's really hard to even imagine right now, to be honest. Mm -hmm. the, the potential of having interoperable media is kind of a fascinating thing. Mm -hmm. When you look at the way the internet is now, everything's siloed across a bunch of different systems, and they intentionally make it really hard for you to migrate between them. What we'd like to do is to make one that is, you know, an internet that is more integrated and more cross-referenced, so that when you see a piece of content on one platform, you can see the roads to other places. You can see the connections. You can see that that user is also not only on Twitter, but maybe also Pinterest, and they have a different type of account there, or that they have um, maybe some music streaming on Spotify, that kind of thing. And so if you have this kind of interoperable system, it becomes more like an Internet of Things kind of environment than the typical Internet. So you take all the silos out altogether, and everything just bridges directly. And so the flow of information then, um, there's a thing with networks where the size of the network increases the utility exponentially. And so if we can make something that is interoperable across all these platforms, which I really think the potential of Arweave is that it acts as the kind of consensus layer that connects other consensus layers. And so if Koi can be part of that in a compute fashion, then we really have a potential to create a Web3 that's integrated instead of siloed and separated. Fascinating. It's, um, yeah, this, this idea of sort of composable data and completely interoperable, well, data slash information content is, um, is super compelling and quite difficult to imagine how it will actually uh, feel from a, from a user's perspective, but uh, extremely compelling. Um, so yeah, I'm personally extremely excited about that. Um, yeah, I think we get to the future one step at a time, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have a few questions specifically about um, how the, the, the Koi attention rewards work. Um, 
One is one is around sort of content mining. So there's this idea that there will be uh, entities who go out, um, find uh, Web2 data and I guess um, content from anywhere and add it to are we even register it with Koi in order to earn um, reward uh, Koi rewards. So uh, the question I kind of had was around um, ownership uh, and ownership of that content. I'm curious what whether whether you see it as an issue that you know the people who created the Web two content might be having it um, registered with Koi by somebody else who's then earning the rewards. Uh, is that an issue, and uh, are there any solutions that you have to it if it is? So we've we've definitely gone back and forth on this one a lot internally. Um, about half the team participate in some kind of artist kind of format like we all like to create stuff we're all very um interested in preserving the rights of the creators of this content and mm -hmm. so what we've noticed is that there's two sides of it you either have content that's like very information oriented and kind of it's more like an aggregate like people are gathering information from a bunch of different websites and it's providing utility by creating an index and that that sort of activity doesn't really infringe on copyright too much um you know something like going and looking at a website and seeing what the prices are for their products isn't it's not really going to hurt anybody and it creates a lot more value than it actually pulls out of the economy. The situation that is uncomfortable is where somebody goes and takes somebody else's original content and then tries to publish that onto our week. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that we have noticed there is that for the most part, at least, a content creator holds a lot of weight. And so if you are the original content creator and something that you publish gets posted onto our week or onto Koi.rocks as an NFT, that kind of thing, um, we are very open to working with you to try and make sure that the other version doesn't get shown up too much. Um, mm -hmm. And the way that it works in Koi is that you get attention rewards based on the amount of traffic that something receives. Mm -hmm. So if you can work with the clients and the portal creators who are running on top of this network, and you can provide you know, the clear information mm -hmm. showing that you originally posted that content quite a while ago and that somebody else has tried to take it from you, then it's not actually unreasonable to imagine that you know, nobody will actually look at the other piece of content because it's not the original version. That's one of the main reasons people like NFTs in the first place, right? Mm. Yeah, exactly. So it's like the market or the, the audience, shall we say, can determine which the legitimate copy is and um, and sort of, and, and so it, it's basically a case of letting the audience work out which the real one is. Uh, right. And this, there's some precedent for this as well. Like, um, yeah. you know, at some point I used to have a LimeWire account and then I started listening to Spotify and iTunes because I wanted to make sure that my artists got paid. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people feel the same way. So we want to make it easy enough for the DApp developers to create those kinds of rails inside of their systems. But it's not too hard to imagine having a sort of a blacklist or some kind of, uh, you know, preferred content list saying, you know, if you're going to look at this particular image, try to look at this one or a video or that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, and I think particularly as the network gains traction, um, more people will just be deploying content directly to it. And um, so it should should resolve itself over time, I think. Um, so an, another question I had, uh, and, and we, we discussed this last week, actually. Currently, Koi operates as sort of one enormous sort of global attention competition. Um, where all content is basically on the same playing field. Um, obviously, this, this could lead longer term to sort of more nuanced information being passed over. 
Um, you, you mentioned when we when we spoke before that there was a solution to sort of make more granularized um, um, co competitions, if you want to call them that. Uh, is that is that what you described earlier with the DAP framework, or is that something else which is coming down the pike? Yeah. So within the DAP framework, um, profit sharing communities are a really big thing on our wave, and it's a really interesting innovation that they've come up with. So we've tried to kind of piggyback that a little bit in the sense that if you wanted to create one of these D apps and you wanted to have your own internal token, you could choose to aggregate the attention that comes to your D app. So instead of registering each piece of content separately, you could just register them under this kind of master umbrella. And then if, you know, say your decentralized Twitter is getting a lot of attention, you can pass that on to the content creators within your network, or you can use it to uh, buy back tokens from them from your internal network. So you can kind of create multiple um, kind of hierarchical currency systems that apply to different uh, you know, sectors, different information mm. concepts, um, different like demographic spaces, even even if you just had two different languages on a similar platform. Fascinating. So you, so it's a kind of a case of offloading this granularization to to DAP developers to to create sort of almost mini competitions for for attention. Yeah, exactly. And then it all still ties into the core Koi attention models. So the app developer or the community can then still receive their Koi tokens. It's just a matter of what they want to do with them from there. Very cool. Um, sorry, I've, I've, a few questions have, have come up as you've been talking. And uh, so I'm going to I'm going to jump back a little bit to the idea you were mentioning with sort of interoperable data, interoperable services, this idea of sort of composable data and um, the the sort of concept in Arweave which comes to mind is about tag protocols, uh, which seem fascinating, and I, I I don't think I've grokked them quite well enough. So I wonder if you could talk a, a little bit about them. Is there any support for them in uh, uh, the DAP framework, and just any any thoughts on tag protocols in general? Sure. So the the origin of tag protocols, at least in this context, comes from like GraphQL, which is the uh, GraphQL is just a, it's a very uh, deconstructed database framework. So you have items in this database and each of the items has a set of tags associated with it. And that allows the index, uh, the index of the database to exist, which tells everybody where all the information is. So Arweave actually uses GraphQL at the uh, base layer to correlate all the information that's in the system. But uh, in a broader context, what this means is that, you know, you can have a tag that if you search that tag, you get a collection of items that all match that tag, similar to hashtags on Twitter, for example. Um, and this is a very powerful thing in decentralized systems because it means that somebody can come along and add a tag to your content. Um, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily get added to your NFT, but the network knows now that that thing that you posted has this tag associated with it, at least by this one user. And if that goes on for long enough, what it allows you to do is to create an index of the internet that exists outside of any private database. So at the moment, if you want to find something on the internet, the typical way to do it is to open up google.com and start typing things. And the reason that you can do that is because Google has created a graph network of the internet and they know where all the tags are and what the relationships between them are. Um, and they've done it really, really well. No fault to Google. Google is an incredible technology. <laughs> but the thing that I think is really powerful, similar to the network dynamics thing we talked about earlier, is the growth of these kinds of networks depends on having more people able to access them and more people add, able to add to them. Mm. And so the larger and more open the network gets, the more powerful it gets. And so having these kinds of tag networks, even in the infancy stage on our wave means that 
long term, we will likely have a very complicated network of indexes and some really fascinating stuff will probably come out of that. Yeah, really interesting. And it's something which doesn't just doesn't really exist on Web2 in the, in the traditional Internet, because there's there just isn't this um, core standard for for creating tags on content and different different content types. So, yeah, again, very, very interesting to see how it plays out. Um, yeah, one thing to add there, too, is, it's, you know, there's the side of it, which is like, you know, people haven't really done this yet. And the other side of it, too, is that when they have done it, they've kept the information very private. So mm. if you were to ask Google what their number one intellectual property um, asset would be, it would probably be their database of tags saying which URLs have which tags. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. It actually um, makes me think of the ceramic network, which I'm quite heavily involved with and, and actually building a product on. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe we don't have time to go into it here, but um, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of smart documents or what they're beginning to call smart streams feels like it has a, a pretty interesting ability to, to interact with tag protocols or maybe kind of create a, a meta index on top of them. Something I have to think a little bit more about. Um, I don't know, are, are you familiar with ceramic? Not that protocol specifically, but the idea okay. of the index is definitely, I think, where Web3 is headed. Okay. Um, so, yeah, one other thing I wanted to, well, I've got, I've got a couple more things to, to touch on, which I particularly was curious to ask you about. Um, one uh, we, we spoke about last week, but I'm, I'm curious to get your, your answer on the podcast as well. Um, it feels more and more like PSTs, uh, PSCs, and um, well, no, not not PSCs, but PSTs and NFTs on Arweave uh, have this enormous amount of potential, um, but but currently it's pretty tricky to get much liquidity on them and to to really move them around with a lot of uh, ease and sort of confidence that the that the prices the the price is right and that the price will be similar in in a in a at a future point um i don't know if you have any thoughts on how that will come into to practice i think you you felt that it would it would um uh that that liquidity for pst's would build with time um but i know there are some complications with smart weave not being able to to custody funds um just just quickly i wonder if you have any thoughts on on technically how it how it could be achieved to bring more liquidity to PSTs. So two things there. The first one is the custody of funds. Um, I think the Virto team have solved this pretty eloquently with their their work with trading posts. Um, so mm. it's a very similar thing to the coin network where you have kind of semi trusted nodes that have to stake tokens in order to run and have functionality associated with them. Mm. Um, to the note of liquidity, though, the way that typically these networks work, I mean, this is what happened with Ethereum early on, right? Um, the liquidity providers come to the network because of the audience the network is drawing. Mm. And when they find the network that has this kind of growth potential, then they want to come in and provide the liquidity because they see that as a good investment of their time. Mm. Um, I think what will naturally happen on Arweave, though, is that people are going to realize very shortly that Arweave has very little gas fees. Um, we uploaded an NFT for three-tenths of a penny yesterday. Yeah. So it's like it's an NFT with an image inside of it, too. Um, yeah. And it was three tenths of a penny. So it's like, why would you ever use Ethereum to do that? It doesn't make sense. So if you're going to be in the market of providing liquidity for these kinds of platforms, it it's just going to be a good option to be on our wheel eventually. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, it might take a little while for people to come around, but the technological sophistication of what they're doing there is just going to lead out over time. Yeah. Great stuff. Um, I, I lied. I, I have now I have two more questions. Uh, Kevin Abosh recently has been um, sort of all over the, the crypto sphere for his one. Uh, I don't actually know how to say it. The one 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 series. And I, I know there's there's some relation to Koi. I, I don't know how much you can talk about it, but um, it would be great to, for, to, to hear your perspective on it. So I don't want to steal Kevin's thunder, but what we did with the Arweave collection, or with the 1111 collection, was that it originally was posted on Arweave, and it's now been sold on uh, the Ethereum side of things through MetaMask. And in the near future, um, there will be some kind of an announcement about using Koi.rocks to take those Ethereum NFTs and get something really cool for them. Um, more info on that coming pretty soon though. Fantastic, looking forward to it as a as a holder of one of those NFTs. Um, well, yeah, as I said, I, I mean, it's, um, I think they, they're, they're like artistically very sound and they look good as well. Uh, I, admittedly, I, I purchased one because I'm super curious to, to see how it does relate to, to Koi. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot more going on there than is immediately apparent, and it's going to unfold over a much longer time scale than most people are currently thinking about. Sounds good. Um, all right, now to, to to finish on a sort of a a, a broader scope, much broader scope. Um, the, I mean, with our we've really what we're talking about is sort of this uh, new new wave of decentralized media. We've had decentralized finance, and I think decentralized media is the uh, is coming up. Um, there are there are uh, if we look at the CCP in China, for example, um, in large part they're maintaining their their dominance through uh, sort of controlling the flows of information. Um, it's also very easy to to it, it's it's kind of more behind the scenes, a little bit more difficult to see, but that that exists in the West as well from sort of financial and political influence. Um, so, with something like Arweave, which is censorship resistant, with something like Koi, which enables um, rewards to be uh, distributed to uh, content developers in a way that's much more much more um, much more difficult to control from a central party, shall we say. What is it, how does the world begin to change as decentral, decentralized media comes into uh, full swing? That's a great question. Um, I, it's really hard to explain how it's going to change the flow of history. Um, but for context, in around, uh, you know, 200 to 400 AD, Roman soldiers moved north into uh, the area that's now Germany and kind of France or northern France. And at the time, um, pagan kind of religions and things like that were very popular in that area. And they had a god named Pan, who most people are probably slightly familiar with, who's a satyr, uh, which looks kind of like a goat with the torso of a man. Mm. And he plays a flute. And Pan at the time was seen as the god of all the um, kind of indulgent pleasures, you know, things like sex and food and, you know, the things that probably 
if you're trying to cramp down on a society, you want them to not do those things because you want them to be more subservient. Mm. And so what the Romans did at the time is that they took this god Pan, who was a really happy guy that played the flute and threw really good parties, and they made him into the modern devil of the Catholic religion. And so that's pretty much how history has always worked, is that when you want to oppress people, you take their greatest pleasure and their greatest happiness and you try to turn it into something that they're not allowed to do. Mm. And this kind of you know, this kind of technology of trying to um, change people's thoughts about things has been around for a really, really long time. The difference now with digital technology is that we finally have the potential to be able to write our own version of history in a way that nobody else can change after the fact. And so what that's going to do is over the next couple of hundred years, I think we're going to see a proliferation of ideas that's never been even kind of considered in the past. Um, you're already seeing this with the, the way that the internet's evolved. You know, I know people now that know how to do incredible things. I know how to cook a steak in a cast iron because I learned how to do it on YouTube. Yeah. And that, you know, that kind of thing happens all over the place constantly. And it's not going to stop. It's actually going to get progressively, it's probably going to accelerate exponentially, I would imagine. Um, mm. it's a really incredible thing to think about because it means that anybody who's trying to police thought is really up against a really difficult battle over the next hundred years. Great answer. And I think what's also so powerful about permanent content is that you'll be able to trace back the origins of ideas as well. So I think a lot of the time, what, why certain ideas sort of lose steam or, um, you know, they, uh, you know, sort of fall out of the common, culture and common thinking is because there's no way to sort of link them back. It's, it's so difficult to, to see the, the, the sort of provenance of an idea. Whereas, you know, when, when everything is logged, there, there's no limit to, to sort of the ability to verify and to, to sort of keep in like the memory of society where an idea came from. And potentially that means that, I don't know. I mean, it could mean that certain civilizations are just could potentially be a lot longer lasting. Like we've 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 had this pattern of civilizations rising up and and declining because the the old values are forgotten, and maybe that's something which can genuinely kind of be solved. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe getting uh, maybe getting too uh, too too sort of broad, but um, it's fascinating to think about, really fascinating to think about. Well, and I think this is, um, so if, if you look at like philosophy, right, there's this general idea um, from Hegel that things tend to flow back and forth. So we tend to go to the thing that we haven't done recently as a species and we forget about the other thing for a long time. And this mm -hmm. has happened for a really long time. I mean, like um, there's a lot of things, like homosexuality was really accepted in ancient Greece. Mm -hmm. And then we just went really far away from that for a long time. And now we're back to the point where we're like, okay, it's cool. <laughs> but it took like it took four thousand years or something crazy like that. Um, and I think the the real potential, like to your point, is that if we have things captured more openly and we do have this kind of tag architecture, it allows competing ideas to exist alongside each other instead of in silos where people can't see the other side of the fence. Fascinating. So on that point, um, maybe we can bring things back to the more concrete and say. Um, where would you point people to? I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are very interested to learn more about Koi at this point. So where, where would you point them to to stay in touch and um, keep up to date with what's going on? 
So our Twitter is probably the easiest way for most people in crypto. Uh, we also have a Discord channel that's a little more active. If you're a developer, that's probably a great place to hang out. And then uh, finally, of course, you can sign up for our mailing list on our website. I will say uh, we are kind of slacking on the marketing lately. We spend a lot more time actually writing code and building things. So uh, please accept my apology now if the website doesn't make any sense at the moment. But uh, stay tuned for more information as we grow. Cool. Yeah, it, it, it did feel like the um, the sort of the ideas behind Koi have been shifting a little bit. And so that's one of the big reasons why I wanted to get you on the podcast and hopefully create uh, a one. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure you've been doing more of these, but uh, at least one point where people can come and see uh, at the moment what, what the plan is. No, it's been great to have the service of your intelligence to explain all of this. Uh, we've definitely got a lot more coming. There's a light paper coming out soon as well, which I think will summarize a lot of this more eloquently. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show, Al, and good luck with Koi. Really excited to see how it goes. Thank you as well. I think you're doing a great thing here. Um, really excited to be part of it. Cheers. All right. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for your attention. If you'd like to learn more about Mechanaut, please follow us at Mechanaut underscore XYZ or follow me at Tanned Oak Sprout on Twitter. I have an award-winning tan and once I've made it, I will build a world-class tanning salon available only to the crypto elite. Thank you and cheerio.